0: We're now into the fourth and final week of this series called Simplify, and uh, let me ask you a question. I know that many of us in the room here have spent maybe many years of our lives living here in Canada. Generally speaking, which, which direction do Canadians want to move, west or east? West. I mean, you probably know family members that live somewhere east of here, and what's one of their dreams or ambitions? I won't ask you to raise hands, but I know that there are entire rows of people here, it seems, that have moved from the east. And that's okay. Scripture says wise men came from the east, right? So that was a smart move on your part. But uh, in Canada, there sort of is this idealistic notion of life seems to maybe get better the further west you can move. And I know that we're kind of biased, so a lot of us would say, well, it seems you know, definitely true. We love life, and we love living here. Uh, on June 11th, the National Post published an article entitled, get this, Newfoundland has the highest levels of life satisfaction in Canada, and B.C. the least. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, contrast the winters. Shouldn't we be way happier? Yes. Contrast the economic potential between west and east and the ability to make wealth if you want to. It would seem move west, not east, right? Where is happiness found in Canada? According to a StatsCan report published earlier this year, east, not west. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. Because a lot of people, I just think it illustrates something. As, As humans, maybe as Canadians, there's ways that we form these ideals. If I could only do this, if I could only achieve this, if once this happens, then I will feel happy, or then life will feel more satisfying. September 1971, some of you remember this, John Lennon released these words to the world. I want you to see this with me Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. Anybody remember this song? No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. And the song goes on, but you get the gist of the message. That was John Lennon pitching an idea to humanity, so that was 1971. Fast forward a bunch of years, and along come memes, and welcome to being memed. John Lennon, I give you this. In 2022, here's John Lennon, asks everyone to imagine no possessions, drives a Royals Royce, and lives in a multi-million dollar house. I mean, so we have ideals, we romanticize certain ideals, and then we might live oppositely, or struggle oppositely. Rich Volotis, who is an author, says this Contentment is living free from the lie that having more of something makes me something more. As we conclude this series, Simplify, today I want us to consider the teaching of Jesus and how it was lived out by the early church, as we see it depicted in the book of Acts. In the early church, there was a clear resistance to attachments because the words and the ways of Jesus had made it clear. Attachments can stop us from loving God and loving people. I want you to grab your Bibles or open your apps was an ancient uh, doctor, history tells us, there was an ancient doctor and historian who had a very strong command of the Greek language, was highly educated, and decided to leave it all behind. Why? To follow Jesus. It's interesting. His name, many of you know, Luke. And he offers to us in Scripture two writings. It's a, it's a two-volume work. They've been sort of divided up in the Bible. But there's the Gospel of Luke, and then there's the Book of Acts. And he wrote both. And he meant for them to sort of be Volume 1 and Volume 2. If you follow sort of the flow of it, if you're interested in this kind of thing, he writes in a very creative, poetic, descriptive, rich, vivid language way. And he writes with movement. Everything in his Gospel is heading towards Jerusalem sort of the epicenter of faith at the time. And what happens in the second volume, the book of Acts, which is the story of the first church, the early church, everything is moving where? From Jerusalem out to the ends of the world. So Luke offers something to us that I find very helpful. I want us to look at something. He captures in Jesus' teaching in chapter 14. So you can turn to Luke chapter 14. As you're going to Luke chapter 14, let me just set up where we're going. We're going to start in verse 16. But I want us to have a few things in mind because I know these are in Luke's mind as well. And so the Spirit is guiding Luke to write in this way and arrange stories and words of Jesus in this way. Luke drew heavily on an Old Testament book called Isaiah. He was a prophet, Isaiah the prophet. And one of my favorite texts in Isaiah is in chapter 25. We won't turn there right now. You can check it out sometime yourself. Luke never specifically quotes from this particular segment of Scripture in in Isaiah 25, but he draws on themes there and sort of seasons his gospel and acts with something that he sees vividly in Isaiah 25. In Isaiah 25 there are a few verses that describe God's desire to feed all his people the most opulent feast. And it's this symbol that God's good work on earth has come to both a fulfillment and a new start in the same motion. And I just love... now. I love food, and so anytime God's talking about food, it's kind of interesting to me that he takes interest, so I I, kind of pay a bit closer attention to his foodie language. But I just love that God used feast language and food and table language to describe his heart. That he, He talks in Isaiah 25 about a table being set, and him preparing this feast, and it talks about different meats. It talks about wines. And the way it talks about the wines, it's like the best kind of wines. And when it talks about the meats, it's talking about the best kind in, in the original Hebrew language that it's written. It, it doesn't usually make it into the translations in English, but it, it talks about, like, fatty meats. Now, I'm not the kind of person that wants to cut right into the fattiest piece of meat and eat the fat. I respect people who can pull that off, but that's not me. But fat means flavor, Right? And so God's talking about, I want to prepare a great meal, and not just for a select few. If you study Isaiah 25, it's for the anybody's, the everybody's. The invitation is sent to everyone. Keep that idea in mind, the feast of God. Before we get to verse 16, Jesus is recorded saying a few other things. And in essence, what he's saying is: listen, people, you need to help people who could never repay you. You need to, if you're, if you're holding a feast or a meal or something like that, don't just invite your family and friends, invite people who could never repay you. I mean, it was a very new thought for anybody to be bringing into the Roman and Jewish world of that time. But Jesus was shifting things a little bit and I think he was drawing attention back to what was prophetically pointed out in Isaiah 25. You see, if God's gonna make a meal for humanity He's not just feeding people who can help him in some way. He's willing to invite those who could never repay him. Somebody responds to Jesus before verse 16 and says, boy, anybody who gets to go to that feast is blessed, okay? So with those things in mind, Jesus then tells a story. It's called a parable. He tells a story in response, and we pick it up in verse 16. Jesus responded with a story. He said this, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Let me just pause there to point something out. It sounds like two invitations, doesn't it? He invites a group of people and then he invites them again. Why is that? Because they didn't have watches back then. They couldn't say, please come to this meal on this day at this time. They might be able to figure out what day it was going to happen on, but they didn't have watches, so they didn't say, oh, the meal's at 4 p.m. or noon or, or whatever. And there were all kinds of unpredictable variables in getting the meal ready. If you've spent time outside of our Western world in Eastern cultures, it seems that they care less, generally speaking, about watches than we do. They care a lot more about relationships. So if there's an interruption, we welcome it because it's relational, right? In our world, if there's an interruption, if we're polite enough, we'll try to reschedule it, right? Not so in the Eastern world. And so in the Jewish time that Jesus is speaking to, if you, if you invited people over for a special meal, you know, it would probably happen on the day that it was scheduled for, but nobody knew what time it was going to happen. So there was a two-invitation practice. Well in advance of the feast, an invitation would go out to the guests who were being invited. And then they would RSVP right away. Sure, I will come on that day. And then when that day arrived, once the meal was almost ready, the master would send out servants back to those who had replied and said, yes, I'll come. And say, now the meal's ready, now you can come. Does that make sense? A little different than how we do meals, but that's how they did it for them. And this is important because... The guests respond in a bit of a surprising way. Verse 18. But they, the guests, all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Now, um, maybe some of us who approach life with you know, a set of glasses, a business set of glasses or whatever, we might look at that and say, Well, hey, you know, there are times that business kind of gets in the way and we're like, oh, I've got to change my plans. Is that okay? And this person seems to be kind of polite in how they're doing it. However, we need to keep in mind that they had already committed earlier, yes, I will be there. And we need to keep in mind that if they've bought this field, and this, the way Jesus tells the story, he knows his Jewish audience is going to know this. If they bought a field they don't need to go look at it again. They've already looked at it. They surveyed it. They explored it before buying it. So Jesus is pointing out, boy, what a lame excuse. Please excuse me because I need to go see the field that I bought. Well, either you're mishandling how to buy things um, or you just you're really not interested in coming to this meal. You're making up an excuse. Second person, verse 19. Another said, I have just bought... Five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Seems to be quite polite. Please excuse me. Here's a legitimate reason. Hang on. This is not a legitimate business kind of excuse. Same kind of thing. If somebody was buying five yoke of oxen, they had already tried them out ahead of time. They have done their homework. So they're just pulling out a random lame excuse and saying, I know that I said earlier I'd come, but yeah verse 19 another said oh sorry verse 20 still another said and i think this was pastor clay i just got married so i can't come <laughs> that's not fair he's not even here to defend himself again some of you are like well marriage is a pretty high priority and you know if i got married i probably wouldn't show up at the feast listen remember they were invited to begin with they knew the date of the feast they knew when they were getting married Weddings didn't just happen suddenly and quickly in the Jewish culture. They, they had been planned for the, a long, long, long time. So, certainly, this was a lame excuse as well, a made up excuse. Verse 21 The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, and there is still room. The master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in, or compel them to come also, so that my house may be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited and said they would come, but now are not, will get a taste of my banquet. Three quick observations. that Remember, In this idea of simplifying certain things in our life, I just want us to consider a few things that now I think comes to some relevance in our lives. Three observations. First is this. The regard of the first invited people towards the host is questionable. Do they appear to actually value their relationship with the host? Doesn't seem like it, does it? Second observation this. The regard of the host towards people, I think, is stunning. He says, okay, if they're not going to come, those who were first invited, let's invite people who will come. So the poor, the crippled, the lame, the outcast and the marginalized, especially in the culture of that day and time. And so the host says, I would love to have those people at my table with me. Wow. Now, now if, if you're piecing things together with me, you've probably figured out it's as if the host of this banquet is God, isn't it? And that's the way Jesus is telling the story. And so God gestures an invitation to all of humanity, come to my table, come and feast with me. And humanity has the option. They don't, they're not forced. God's a gentleman. And if they make a lame excuse, actually, I'd, I'd rather do this or that. It is disappointing to God because he cares relationally for all people. But if people decide, well, I'm going to go do my own thing, God wants people at the table. And when there's still room, he wants more people at the table. And so he invites whoever would come. And who are they? Like I said, like we saw in this scripture, they're marginalized. They're outcast. The host is willing, willing to associate with these people. Again, in the Jewish and Roman cultures that surrounded Jesus when he's teaching these kind of things, this was radical. To us, it's a little more maybe palatable and we're like, oh, that's, that's cool. That's really neat. We admire maybe that social justiceness that we see in Jesus or in this storytelling. But in the Jewish and Roman world of Jesus' day, this stood out you're willing to associate with these people you're willing to to eat with them eating in the eastern culture of jesus day wasn't just sort of like oh, it's a way to kind of connect it was a way of sharing a bond with somebody entering into an agreement with them and so here comes god gesturing to humanity listen if you don't want to come to my table that's fine i'll find people who do And if they're outcast, if they're marginalized, if you don't like hanging out with them, that's okay. I would love to. It'd be my honor to host them. Wow. Now, we have to imagine that some of the people in these categories Jesus is talking about in the story, the poor, the outcast, the crippled, the marginalized, all of them, some of them would be considered by the Jewish world to be ceremonially unclean. That means they were not worthy of being able to worship God at that time. And yet, here comes God gesturing, if you're ceremonially unclean, you're still invited. Come to my table. Come eat with me. For a Jewish rabbi like Jesus to say that, it would be astonishing. You mean you'd be willing to be made unclean because of the presence of those people at your table? And God says, absolutely. Wow. I mean, don't you love this? Maybe you've heard me say this before, but sometimes... Um, I've got respect for people who are atheists. They put a lot of work into their faith. (laughs) Um, As we do also, you you know, and I'm not trying to pick on them in in an unfair way, but it's it's not easy being a Christian, it's not easy being an atheist either, I imagine. And um, I heard somebody say this once before, I thought it was brilliant. They said, um, here's a great question. If you have an atheist friend that you have respectful dialogue with, just ask them this. Tell me about the God that you don't believe in because maybe I don't believe in that God too, is the thought. And there are depictions of God out there in the world, and some of them, unfortunately, as a result of misrepresentations through the church or Christians. And I think all of us are guilty as charged in many different ways, but the reality is, the closer you get to the heart of who God really is as expressed and clarified to humanity through Jesus Christ in the Gospels, my goodness, God is wonderful. He's not walking around all pompous and better than everybody. No, he's getting as close to humanity as he can. You're unclean, that's okay, I'd be your friend. I'd bond with you over a meal. You're welcome to my table. If that's what God is like, I'm interested in knowing more. Third observation is this. Those who in the end choose to come all have something in common. Dave, we have this slide. They are unattached to stuff. Dave, do we have this? No, no third one? Okay. I'll say it one more time for you. My apologies. I must not have sent it or got it up to you. Those who in the end choose to come and respond to the invitation, who actually show up around the table, they have one thing in common. They're all unattached to stuff. They're poor. They're crippled. They're lame. They're outcast. They're marginalized. And they're not attached stuff. Those who didn't show up, what were the main reasons why they didn't show up? Bought a field, got some oxen, this relationship. Their attachment to things, their attachment to stuff mattered more than their attachment to God. Those who did come, the outcast, the marginalized, are the kind of people totally dependent, totally dependent, poor in spirit. So, This is the teaching of Jesus. Did the the first church take it seriously, I guess is the question. If Jesus presents a story like this, did people say, well, that was a nice story time. You know, thank you, Jesus, bedtime story. Now go to sleep and we won't do anything about it. Or is there any evidence in the book of Acts and in history that the first church took quite seriously Jesus' teaching on attachments? I propose to you that they did, and I want to just lay out for you a few instances quickly in the book of Acts that seem to point it to us. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to flip through a few things quite quickly. If you have your Bibles, I do hear somebody's paper Bible. I just love that. I hear them flipping. Again, anytime you like, if you just want to just do this during a message, even if I haven't asked you to turn to a page, it just like... I don't know, it's like, you know those cars that get pulled back and then you let it go and off it goes? It does something like that in my soul. (laughs) Acts chapter 2 is famous, especially in our church circles, Pentecostal charismatic circles, because we're like, ah, the Spirit got poured out upon the church. And there's beautiful evidences of the Spirit's work in the church. Here's a passage we come back to often, and I want you to hear it again. Verse 42 through 47 of chapter 2. I want you to listen to this. And just imagine and picture this. And the question we're approaching Acts with is, did the first followers of Jesus actually take Jesus' teaching on attachments seriously? Here's a description of what church life was like for those first followers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread. That was a symbolic gesture of meals and communion together. And to prayer, verse 43, everybody was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by all the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as they had need every day. They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We see in this, the Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, and there's a description of all kinds of wonderful things going on in the life of church, and dead center in it What's going on? A definite detachment from stuff resulting in people loving and helping each other. Flip over with me to Acts chapter 4. The Spirit... I just heard those Bible pages again. Wow. Makes my heart race. Um, The Spirit didn't just show up once in Acts. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit keeps coming towards the church to empower, to refresh. And in Acts chapter 4, there was threats going on historically around the church. And so the church had to decide, do we hide in a corner or do we depend on God and keep doing what Jesus called us to? And they chose that. Good move. So it says this in verse 31, after they prayed, The place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. And Luke, by design, under the Spirit's influence, wants us to see what's it like when God's people get filled with God's Spirit. Verse 32, all the believers were in one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, uh, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them. Important point just to make here. It's people who, generally speaking, historians would agree and scholars that they're referring to people in the church who owned multiple. So in some cases there would have been some people who say, well, I'll sell my only home and give towards this. But in, in many cases there were some people who had, through just generational inheritance, received many parcels of land and they realized, you know what? I could monetize this and help people. And so they did. There were no needy persons among them, verse 34, because from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money uh, from the sales and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as there was need. And then there's a great example. Luke says, here's a great example, and he talks about a person named Joseph who gave, sold some land and gave it to help people. And then if you want uh, another example, uh, what not to do, Luke follows it up in chapter 5 with the story of two people who decided, hey, it's a great, you know, look at this. Maybe we get a little bit of popularity if we sell some stuff and people find out it was us. And so let's sell something, say that we're giving all the money, but we're going to keep some of it to to ourselves. I'm summarizing chapter 5 for you. Ananias and Sapphira lied to God and they paid dearly for it. And as the early church leaders pointed out, the issue wasn't that they kept money for themselves. That's okay. You're, of course, allowed to do that. The issue was that they had lied about it to God and to themselves, making it feel like, well, if we pretend that we've given it all, maybe we get a bit more notoriety around here. We're known for this or for, for, for that. And it revealed that there was idolatry in their heart. They cared more about what other people thought about them than what God thought about them. So, you know, follow the example of Joseph, not chapter 5. So again, spirit moves in chapter 4, and what's the evidence? People appear to be quite detached from things, willing to help others and love others. Acts chapter 10 and 11, flip ahead with me there, Acts 10 and 11. We won't go into the whole story or anything, but let me summarize. 10 and 11, Peter now goes to people who don't know God through a Jewish faith. They're called Gentiles in Scripture, those who are non-Jewish. And this was radical for the Jewish world, the chapter 10 and 11 story, because God's spirit, they expected God's spirit to come on them because they were Jewish. But in chapter 10 and 11, now the gospel of Jesus is being presented to non-Jewish people and they're responding and the Holy Spirit is coming upon them too. How do we know the spirit comes upon them? Because there's evidences, there's prophetic utterances, there's things in scripture we know of as tongues, but those aren't the only evidences. Let me say that again. Those aren't the only evidences. Friends, if you're in this church, if you're online with us and you're like, oh, well, I'm part of a Pentecostal church and I know I'm part of a Pentecostal church because I pray in tongues or I prophesy and we love those things. It's part of the package with the Spirit available to all. However, that's not what it is to be Pentecostal. That's not all there is. There is more. There's this consistent thread of an additional sign that comes up when God's Spirit comes upon people. It has to do with a detached lifestyle, detached from stuff. Look in chapter 11, verse 27. The Spirit has moved on the Gentiles, and Luke includes this story very intentionally under the inspiration of the Spirit for us to realize this is what the Spirit-filled life looks like. During this time, some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus, and he stood up through the Spirit and predicted that a severe famine would spread through the entire Roman world. Luke includes a commentary note here and says, this happened actually during the reign of Claudius. Verse 29. So they've heard this word. Oh no, there's going to be famine. What do we do? Verse 29. The disciples, each according to their ability, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters of Christ living in Judea. So the church in Judea. They, uh, this they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So they made a collection together, and they gave it to church leaders and said, bring this to those who will be in need in the Jerusalem church. What's interesting, we can piece this together because of Paul's writing in Corinthians, that when this need is made known, the church that hears this, they know that the church in Jerusalem has a lot of poverty. So they think, we have to help them. What's the problem? The church that's hearing this, chapter 11 news, They're very poor themselves, very poor. Read in Corinthians, it's amazing. Paul marvels at how they, they insisted on giving to help others even though they themselves were struggling with resource too. My goodness, what an evidence of the Spirit of God in their lives. Last one I want to point out to you. Chapter 19, go ahead with me there. The gospel continues continues to move away from Jerusalem, going to the far reaches of the world, and now it's into parts of modern Turkey and so on, into a town called Ephesus. And in chapter 19, the Spirit is moving in Ephesus. We won't go into that whole story, but if you look at the first part of the Ephesian account, what's going on? Paul, the church leader, is there and he has a dialogue with some people and he discovers they don't know enough about the Holy Spirit, so they are introduced to the Holy Spirit, they have a wonderful experience of the Holy Spirit. And so Luke, under the inspiration of that same Holy Spirit, writes his an account in such a way so that we make sure we see what some of the signs and evidences of a Spirit-filled life look like. So pick up with me in verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. See, as as Pentecostals, we love those stories and I do too. Wow, amazing, spirit working in power. But there's more and we'll catch it towards the end. Verse 13, some of the Jews, seeing what was going on, went around driving out evil spirits and they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. So this is interesting. There were Jewish leaders or Jewish people in the area who were committed to following their Jewish ways and not following Jesus, but they saw there was effectiveness when people used Jesus' name. So they wanted to borrow the the name of Jesus and see if it could make their own practice more profitable and effective. And they would say things like this. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Verse 14 is an illustration. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them. This has got to be scary for them. Jesus I know and I know about Paul but who are you <laughs> verse 16 then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding I just imagine Luke laughing as he's writing this I mean it's not that it's comical to us to think about it but if you were a witness if that actually happened my goodness that'd be so scary Verse 17, what's the result of that occurring? When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, what was the result? They all jumped on social media and said, you won't believe what happened to the seven sons of Sceva. We all got this on TikTok and on Insta Story. Look at at them running naked. Get the blue screen on them. My goodness. The demon overpowered them. They tried to misuse the name of Jesus. When this became known in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Don't misuse the name of Jesus for personal gain. The name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Some of them were like, oh no, you know, I've been hiding something in my life. I wasn't sure if this belonged to me or it belonged to God, so I just sort of kept it in the dark corners of my life. And they're like, wait, if this faith is real, if Jesus is real, it all belongs to him. I'm not hiding things any longer. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls and together... Uh, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In today's, you know, conservatively conservatively speaking, that's about $10 million. $10 million worth of scrolls burnt in an instant. This didn't happen sort of to the side somewhere. They didn't incinerate it underground and hide the smoke and stuff like that. This was public. People realized what was going on. It created a stir. Verse 20, in the same way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Some of you, if you're a critic, you might say, well, I don't read about the poor getting helped in that passage. Maybe that's not an evidence of the Spirit. What I do propose to you, if that's you, here's another evidence that when the Spirit of God comes on your life, you learn and are empowered to detach from things that have had a hold on you. These people were holding on to these books of sorcery and magic. It had been part of their past, and they're like, ah, it's kind of cool, interesting stuff you know it's great that we have Jesus in our life now but I you know this is part of my culture it's part of my heritage so this is also kind of neat and they held on to it it was in darkness in their lives and then they hear about the seven sons of Sceva and they're like wait the dark realms are really dark and they're really evil and they're really awful I shouldn't hold on to this anymore and so they pull it and pile it all together and they light it on fire I think that's amazing. Do you know what I think is really amazing? $10 million. You know what would have been tempting? Let's sell the stuff. And you know what would have been tempting from a self righteous point of view? Let's sell the stuff and give it to the poor. $10 million could make a big difference, right? No. Why give that to somebody else and let it become their problem? Better to burn it. I find this interesting. Some of us, maybe during the sell a thing campaign, we're like, I really shouldn't have this in my life anyways. Well, if it's gonna be a curse in somebody else's life, don't, don't sell it to them, don't give it to them. Burn it, destroy it. Karen Davis, who's part of our church family, many of you know her, told me a great story a couple of weeks ago. She came to faith in Jesus as an adult and had great discipleship and encouragement in her life. And somewhere along the way, somebody gently pointed out that, hey, it seems like you're still including some of the former ways of looking at things and approaching life and reality, and maybe it seems like you have a bit more faith in the universe and in other forms of spirituality than you should as a follower of Jesus. And so it caused Karen to take some, like, honest inventory in her soul. Well, do I? Well, maybe I need to sever my connection with the past. And she read a book that helped her realize, you know what? I need to do a spiritual cleansing. I need to do a spiritual inventory of my soul and my home. And she literally went room by room in her home and would pray, Holy Spirit, is there anything in this room that shouldn't be here any longer? And then she's like, oh, you know, and all of a sudden I'd see on a bookshelf, you oh, know, I've got this book on astrology. I'm not, I, don't, I don't follow that. I'm going to get rid of it. She didn't sell it. She burnt it. Walked into another room, prayed, Holy Spirit, is there anything in this room that doesn't belong here? Her eyes went to a, a piece of artwork that she would picked up on a trip. It was sort of like a trinket from a market somewhere else. And she realized, you know what? This represents idolatry in, in a different culture. And I, I don't need it. And so she severed her ties with it. I remember as a youth pastor, there were some years where it was just such a wonderful move of God's spirit in this youth ministry I was privileged to be part of. I was on a team that was serving a group of about two to 300 youth at the time. And this was back before everybody had phones and all the bad stuff was accessible on your phones. And I remember one service, one of the guys who had been part of our youth ministry for a while walked up to the front of the stage with a bag full of pornography and just dumped it right on the stage. Like, I can't have this in my life anymore. Wow. Severing his attachment with it. We got, like, a black garbage bag and just, like, kicked it in, tied it up. We're like, we're not going to investigate, see what that is. You know, we trust you. It doesn't, got rid of it, destroy it, Get get it out of there. And when we're talking about simplify and simplifying in this season, we are talking about Let's not be consumers and materialistic in this world. But let's also talk about the reality that we need to allow spiritual inventory in our lives. There are some things that we need to be free from the attachment to. It's for your own good and for your own sake. It's for your faith's sake. All right, I have a fun memory from our son, Lyndon, when he was a little guy. By the way, just about 10 days ago, he turned 15. I'm so proud of him. He's such a good man, good man. A lot of times we don't get to see him in the first service because he he helps out every Sunday in kids' ministry. We don't force him to do that, by the way. It was his own choice. I'm like, great. It's awesome that you like helping like that. When he was a baby, maybe getting close to eight, nine months or whatever, he had a, you know, he was an idolater. He had a God in his life, not Jesus. His God was named Baba. It was his bottle. And he would pray to his God several times a day we would hear it from the other room. Baba! Baba! (laughs) And I remember there'd be times I would get his bottle ready and then I'd come into the room where Lyndon was and he was on the floor playing with something or laying on his back and he'd have a toy and he'd be clutching it and then he'd see Baba! Baba! He'd be so excited and I'd come and he's laying there I want to give him his Baba and he's holding his toy Baba! 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 And he's so excited and I want to give him what he needs, right? And then he gets frustrated and anxious and upset. Why? Because it's not getting into his face yet. Well, he's old enough. I remember at the time he was old enough he could hold the bottle himself, but he would not let go of the toy in his hand. And I just think sometimes that's us in our faith walk. We're like, God, I need you. And he's like, here I am. And we're like, I need you, I need you. And there's something in our life that we're also clutching that's keeping us from fully embracing Jesus in our lives. Could we stand together? As we bring this series to conclusion, I wonder if you would join me as Joel leads us in singing I Surrender All. Going back to the the story Jesus told, the parable of the banquet, those who struggled and ultimately didn't come were those who struggled with attachment. The ones who came, it was kind of easier for them to come because they didn't struggle. They, they didn't have, you know, they were the poor, the marginalized, the outcast. And so for those of us who have, which is all of us in this room, it's a discipline for us to realize it's okay for us to steward things that God has granted us. Stuff isn't the enemy, it's not evil. It's okay for you to have things, but it's not okay for things to have you our application as a church family this month to this Simplify series is to each in our, at least each household, maybe even each adult or even children in the homes, sell something this month, detach from something, sell it. And let's donate the proceeds together to help with Ukraine relief. As a church family, we were so privileged to to help rescue Sasha and Tatiana and bring them from Ukraine to the Comox Valley, and now they have a new grandbaby here to celebrate. They're building a new life here, and we're helping by selling things. And if more comes in than's needed for them, we're going to deploy those funds to help on the ground in Ukraine right now. I want to pray for you as we close today. Father, we give you great thanks for your work in our lives. Let me be the first to confess before you, detaching from stuff can be hard. But may I always see that my connection to you is greater, that your grace is greater, that your hold on me is even greater than my ability to squirm <laughs> in your hand. You love us. You hold us. As we conclude our June sell campaign, would you guide us this week as, we, as this month comes to an end in these sales of things so that we can help people right here in the Comox Valley and in Ukraine, that we can see your kingdom advance through this cause. Now as we go into your world on your mission, we declare again not our independence, but our dependence upon you. We need your spirit for power, for love, for truth to flow from our lives. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said Amen. There are cupcakes, graduates. No, you better get your jacket on and get out there. Uh, We're hoping you're going to help serve us some cupcakes. Everybody Let's enjoy some cupcakes. If you're watching from home and you're just catching on to cupcakes now, you'll still make it. If you get here, there'll be a cupcake for you. Let's enjoy some time outside together. Bless you. See you next week at 10 a.m.